Hello, everybody! Welcome to Manga Mavericks, our podcast devoted to discussing manga as both a medium and an industry. I'm your host, Lam Ramiyasha, and today we are continuing our LGB Thanksgiving theme month with another special interview with a very special guest, one who has been trailblazing a path for an entire genre of gay manga to be discovered and enjoyed by fans in the West. After our recent retrospective on my brother's husband earlier this summer, we were left curious about its creator, Ngoro Tagame, and the world of gay manga. So we decided to talk to the person who perhaps knows Tagame's work best, An Ishii, translator of My Brother's Husband and ambassador for Tagame's work in the West. An is one of the co-founders of Massive Goods, a publisher dedicated to producing gay manga, apparel, and merchandise, and is the executive director of the Asian Arts Initiative. She has done so much over her career, and we explore her translation background and her work in manga, and she shares her insights on Tagami and the writing of My Brother's Husband, thoughts on the future of gay manga, and reveals some exciting news that may color you surprised. Now, we don't want to show our colors just yet, so listen to the podcast and see for yourself. Listeners of Manga Mavericks know that we're huge fans of Gengoro Takame's My Brother's Husband. We recently revisited the series and fell in love with it all over again, and that made us want to go and learn more about the series and also explore more of Takame's other work and the world of gay comics that he basically pioneered. And so joining us on the show today is An Ishii who is the executive director at the Asian Arts Initiative and the owner and co-founder of Massive Goods, as well as producer and translator extraordinaire. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Siddharth. Yeah. I'm really sad that my co-host wasn't able to join us because he loves My Brother's Husband so much. It's definitely one of his favorites. And it's such a really sweet story. And definitely resonant, you know, for, like, a great LGBTQ title that really broke into the mainstream. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, first of all. I'm glad uh, y'all are fans, or, you know, sounds like. And um, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll just jump right into it. But even for us, I think it was a little bit of a surprise. Like, you know, each time the book got reprinted in Japan and then... You know, the way that it was published, it was a serialized piece in a monthly manga, um, what are those called? Not anthologies, but anyway, just a magazine every month. Um, oh my gosh, the language is just like escaping me. Anyway, you know, they they make decisions on how to call up, compile them as tankobon or as graphic novels while it circulates, just looking at the sales figures. And because it kept doing well, they kept adding Tankoban. So it went from, you know, initially it was supposed to be like one volume and it went up to four. So that's just goes to show how unexpected and delightful the whole thing has been. That's really great. So the story was originally only planned to be a one volume work, but it got expanded. Yeah, so you know, it was serialized in Gekkan Actual Masri, and um, it's basically I, I'm trying to remember. It's most famous for also being where like Crayon Shinchan debuted. Oh yeah, so it's like a super not 
not specifically expansive magazine in terms of themes. Like, I don't think they really look for, you know, queer representation or gay stories. But so this was kind of a, you know, like it was kind of a step out. And then apropos, they were like, you know, there was just this understanding that it's all just going to be based on its popularity and sales, whether they kept running the serial. So, and that's pretty common in all Japanese manga magazines, but in this particular one, it just, I guess the results were really positive for so long. They kept adding and adding, but um, I don't even know if mangaka are given any sort of clue as to it being like beyond one or two chapters. Like, I think it's kind of like piloting a TV show where, you know, they put it out there and then they can just decide to cancel it, but they didn't. So that's really great. Reading my brother's husband, it definitely feels like a story planned out and complete beginning to end in terms of mm. where all the narrative treads lead and the character arc mm. of uh, Yaichi and relationship with Mike. So mm-hmm. I like, I'm glad that he was able to tell like a really full story like that. And in the mainstream magazine too. Yeah, totally. I, I agree. And um, that's a testament to his skills as a storyteller for sure. But um you know, I remember Tagami telling me that he knew when he started it how it would end. Like, he already knew how it would end, right? So everything else in between was a matter of, like, subplots and arcs and character development. So um, I thought that was interesting, too. Mm-hmm. Looking at Manga Action's lineup of stuff they published in the past, it seems that they have, like, quite an eclectic selection. Mm-hmm. They published a Yuri manga from... Milk Morinaga, Hanatehina, which I really mm-hmm. like. So interesting. It's I'm glad that they have explored a lot of different variety. And I think this story especially was really great because it was a story starring an out gay character and talking about debunking myths about gay people and being out there about gay culture and yeah. normalizing it for like a mainstream Japanese audience totally. who might not think about it a lot so that was really really great yeah i feel like this was sort of a perfect storm of you know the context in which it was published and the setting and then the characters were just sort of really all from the right place and the right time to tell this you know important narrative of coming out because the coming out narrative looks so different here in the u.s and in canada Mm. where the mike character is from but um you know, just to kind of position it in Japan with those really specific circumstances really kind of made it um, more interesting, I think, than just like, hi, I'm coming out, you know, or I'm out or like the fact that that's a, a central theme of, you know, living an unhidden, complete life as a gay man was really I thought the circumstances were really well staged. Yeah, I mean, it's a real culture shock gap for Yaichi, because not only, you know, he's meeting a gay person for the first time, I suppose, but he also is, you know, interacting with a foreigner. Mm-hmm. So Right, 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 right. And so, yeah, I think that is just, that might have been an interesting concept for Japanese readers mm-hmm. to just have like, hey, the, there's this really different person entering this guy's life but he's you know still a person and ultimately he realizes he's family right which was so nice yeah 
But I also think that the impact here in the U.S. and in the West when it was translated results are really great. I feel like My British Husband and My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness Mm. came out around the same time. And they kind of paved the way for more like explicit LGBTQ titles to get published like Our Dreams at Dusk. Yes. Yeah. You're totally right. There's been a multiplying effect for sure, I think. And um, I mean, gosh, I I don't know if I want to open this can of worms, but, you know, it's also really helped us think about, like, who's writing these stories, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not that there hasn't been, like, same-sex tension in any manga before, but this is a totally different set of interests and goals and perspectives because they're just, you know, more authentic. And I that alone is kind of worth whatever payout we get in the industry, I think. Yeah. I mean, another part of what makes My Brother's Husband feel so authentic is that it is written by an openly gay mm-hmm. manga artist who makes his living drawing gay manga. Right. Totally. And basically the fodder of the gay manga scene, like reading massive and oldie mm-hmm. author bios, uh, introductions like pretty much every other artist in that book like basically credits Tagami for influencing them yeah 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 I think his role in shaping sort of young gay authors it can't be understated I mean he does so much for his community it's just like astonishing mm-hmm And I definitely want to talk more about Tagame, but I think I want to circle back and talk about you and your introduction to manga to start with. So would you like to, you know, explore like your background in manga? Like how you got into it? Totally. I have a really peculiar entry to manga because I wasn't somebody who, well, so I was raised Japanese Culturally, my parents are, my mother's Korean, but was raised in Japan, and both my parents were raised in Japan. And then, you know, I was, I'm a first generation Japanese Korean American, but um, all of that to say, you'd think I was positioned to just be like reading a lot of manga as a kid, which just wasn't the case. <laughs> like, I didn't, I did not read any manga as a kid. I was reading a lot of like American YA and kids lit and, um, Comics just didn't really enter my my life until, God, college? I think it was in college I first started looking at it. And then it was actually in grad school that um, I, I then it was just the most typical thing. But I was introduced to Osama Tezuka. And like I'm telling you, before this, it was just like I'd read Sandman. I'd read Mouse. Like I was just sort of reading all the major sort of established American mm-hmm. publications didn't have a strong point of view about this. And then my first job was at Vertical where we were, you know, really digging into Tezuka's archive of adult work. He has so much really cutting edge adult oh, work. Yeah. 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 You know, so that was my first real dive into manga and it just was mind blowing. And if, if you read, you know, not not to be this person, but if you read like American comics and then see something like uh, Ode to Kirihito or like an MW, or if you look at these like more adult works by Tuska, it's like, whoa, just <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, 
sit down American comics. Like we're about to get into it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, that was my manga. That That's my manga education basically is just like seeing a lot of the stuff you're supposed to see as an adult, as an adult, but without the childhood training. And at the same time, you know, the people who are championing this work the hardest were a lot of um, independent graphic novelists from the U.S. and Canada. So I was seeing a lot of, you know, what in the early aughts was sort of like the cutting-edge graphic novels of those times. You know, I'm thinking of people like David Metz Kelly. And, you know, things change over time. But, the, like, between that or, oh, my gosh, Esther Pearl Watson, that was huge for me, too. So... I, to me, like, it it was never, like, manga. It was more, like, adult, cutting-edge comics from wherever I could get them from. Like, one of the first manga I got really into was Taiyo Matsumoto. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it sounds a little obnoxious when I say it like that, because it's almost <laughs> like I'm being, <laughs> you know, this, like, perceived graduate student into avant-garde manga, but it just happens that that's where I started. So the same is for true for American and certain North American comics. Yeah, I think that's a really unique way to get into it. And I definitely appreciate Vertical putting out Tezuka's adult manga. Mm. I love Buddha. I love Odukiri Hito, Apollo Song, mm. all that stuff. Like Tezuka exploring like really dark psychology, but and also being really inventive with his paneling totally. in that. Like that is really fantastic art and storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so you first, you know, start working at uh, vertical in terms of working in the manga industry, but like when was like your first experience, you know, translating manga? Mm-hmm. I guess it was, I'm trying to think, you know, I was trying to make a side hustle translating. So I was doing things like translating medical documents and like pharmaceutical websites. And um, that that's just to say that I always looked for ways to translate. Initially, it was like sort of a side hustle. I actually graduated with translations as my thesis. So I had been working in you know, my, I'm trained to read prose fiction, so that's that's still sort of where my heart is if I'm reading translations or working on translation. But the first manga I translated was Detroit Metal City for Viz. Mm. And, um, oh my god, that was so fun. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that was so fun. Oh yeah. I don't even know that that series would get picked up today. It's just so problematic. <laughs> <laughs> so problematic. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel privileged to snuck in before our censors got, you know, um not censor C E N but S E N. Like if our our antenna didn't become so acute. Um wow, that was such a fun series to work on Mm -hmm. yeah and then i also i mean simultaneously i was working on like i said prose fiction i translated some books um missing and then lugaru and then you know i was i'm such an idiot that i was even translating things i wasn't getting paid for like just on the side because i wanted to see what it would sound like in english so anyway yeah 
Yeah, Detroit Metal City is a real fun one. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> heavy metal comedy. Like, oh uh, my gosh. That is... That is kind of like an extreme title in terms of some of the content in there for Viz to publish at that time, for sure. It's it's amazing. And I think that's a testament to Viz circa late 90s, early aughts, like its early days, for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those guys were crazy. So um, I want to go back and read them again now, actually. I, I'm almost forgetting how fun that, that was. <laughs> Yeah, it's still available to pretty easily purchase, too, mm-hmm. so that's great. Mm-hmm. And so you had some, like, these early experiences, and then you were, like, freelance writing for a few other places uh, yeah. for a while. But then, like, what got you back into the manga world? Like, what was your first exposure to, you know, gay manga and Gengaro Tagami's mm. work in particular? So while all of this is happening, while I'm doing all this work, Vertical's artistic director was Chip is slash was Chip Kid, um, and he and I just sort of hit it off. But he started sharing with me his private collection of gay manga, which he was introduced through to through. I want to say Donald Ritchie. I think it was Donald Ritchie, the Japanese lit scholar. And um, anyway. There's just always been this interest in gay manga, and it was before, you know, the internet was quite what it was today. It was mostly just, like, people smuggling books back from Japan or finding each other on these, like, web boards. And um, I just kept thinking that's probably where it needs to just, like, exist. Like, it felt like that was right. Just let it kind of exist in the underground. But people kept asking me, like, where can I find this in English? Or can you help me get in touch with the authors? And um, it was really just like a couple years of this. And then finally, it was Graham Colbeans, my co-founder partner at Massive, who approached me, gosh, it was 2010, 11, maybe 12, 2010 or 11 or something. He says, uh, I want to do an interview with Gagor Tagame for Butt Magazine. And while I'm at it, I thought I'd try to talk to, um, actually, no, it wasn't Tagame. Sorry. He said, I want to interview a bunch of gay mangaka for Butt Magazine. Do you think you could translate for me? And I was like, why would you do all of that work for, I knew Butt wouldn't pay him. Like, I was like, why Mm. would you do all of that work for an article you won't get paid for? Also, I certainly don't want to translate all that for no money you know what i mean that's like that's like weeks of my life um but i was like i'd be happy to help you figure out how to do this and then in like the second conversation about it i was like why don't we just publish a book like forget an article let's do a book so it all happened just basically because people kept saying like why can't i find this more easily hmm and what was the process like re- reaching out to artists like Tagame and then other artists mm-hmm. from there to like publish in Massive? Well, the irony is that um, getting in touch with Tagame was pretty simple. He'd already had Tagame.org. I love that it was org. <laughs> 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 um, I have no idea how he got that. <laughs> um, and then... 
I, you know, I just wrote to whatever contact form was there at the time. It might still be the same one. Jeez. Anyway, um, he responded pretty quickly. I was going to Japan for work a lot at that time anyway. So I said, you know, my next trip, I'd love to meet you and just like share with you an idea we have in the U.S. for publishing your work in English. And he was pretty good. He he just was like, yeah, I'm open to it. Just like, let me know. All I need is to know like what I get out of it. Like he didn't have any objections. I want to know who we're dealing with and what I get out of it. That's all it was. Very business. But um, he said it was basically almost 10 years that he wasn't working and where he really thought about, you know, ceasing all manga activity. And then he started traveling and he spent a lot of time just traveling and doing things that he's not specialized in, like writing music or taking pictures. Mm. And then realized, like, his heart really only sang to drawing and manga. So I guess I'm saying all of this because that's like a chapter of this whole thing that a lot of people don't know about. But also because it was during that time that a lot of people were trying to find him to try to get his work in English. And that's why they failed, because he was just off the radar. Like, he said he'd stopped answering emails you know it was like a dark period i just was fortunate to have reached him kind of when he decided you know to come back online and and work again i mean it's almost just like blind luck that i happened to um reach out when i did because chip had written him before and had no response and just assumed it was because he had no interest um, and I'd heard the same from others. So that's that's basically what it was like reaching out. Just I, I met a Tagame that was very enthusiastic, cooperative, and excited at the opportunity to talk with American readers. And then from there, it was sort of like, as you mentioned, everybody always cites him as sort of a credit to their career. Well, if I say I have him, then all of the other mangaka are like, yeah, I'll work with you. You know, like if he's working with you, then I certainly have no problem talking to you. And um, that was really tremendous. Wow. I guess the story just goes to show it's always worth following up on to reach out to people. For sure. I, I you know... This is a little off topic, but I'm somebody who I think you can ask anybody and they'll verify this. I'm pretty insistent. <laughs> like if I communicate with somebody and I feel like it's important enough to actually get feedback or, you know, response, I won't. I, I'm pretty insistent. I mean, I'm also appropriate. I'm not like a tabloid journalist or anything about it. But um, I think that's so important. I tell people all the time, like, there's just like, you should always reach out, even if it feels like a risk. Because the other thing is, I've gotten some pretty shitty responses. And um, you think that would hurt your feelings? And it does, it like kind of sucks. But it actually just kind of, then you can say, oh, well, that's happened now. Like I have that, I've had that experience now. I don't know. Hmm. I like telling people to, to just go ahead and reach out. Yeah, and the connection that you made with Tagame is so valuable because basically you are now sort of his agent and manager for overseas, like here in the States. Yeah. Like you've helped bring him over to several conventions and 
you've been translating a bunch of his work, including my brother's husband. Yeah, yeah. I'll say one more thing about this because it's so important, I think, for manga fans to know. What's worse is when you don't reach out and just like start using their materials without permission or even an acknowledgement. Mm. Nothing pisses off mangaka more than that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that ties into the piracy mm -hmm. conversation, which is explored a lot in the, you know, authors' bios in Massive. Like, pretty much every artist has something to say Mm -hmm. about how piracy has not only, like, hurt them financially, but just personally. Yeah. Like, it is hurtful to have your work be read in a way that is out of your control. Yeah. And you're not really seeing any of the reward from that. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think the one criticism we got on Massive was that it was a little repetitive in that sort of tone of, you know, don't pirate. But I just, I can't emphasize enough. This was really the the meat of our conversation with every interview was just like, why do you guys do this? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, Not that it doesn't also happen in Japan and Asia at large, but I think in Japan, especially licensing and permissions look so different. It's just like bonkers to them, I think, to imagine like, if you say you respect my work as much as you do, you say on social media all the time that you're number one fans, why would you then do this to me? That just feels a little cuckoo. So, yeah. I mean, the worst is when you tell an artist, like, right to their face that, oh, I've been reading your work on this illegal channel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I know things that I'm not supposed to know because oh, it's not God. officially because I read it unofficially. I remember I was at AX during a panel featuring the creator of Overlord, the light mm-hmm. novel series. And there was someone who came up and asked him about something that was not in the official translation. It was in a fan translation. Oh my God. And very awkward moment. And then later, the author of Overlord, I think, has ended his series out of frustration mm-hmm. over piracy. Oh, no. <laughs> Basically said as much on Twitter. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's just really frustrating. Yeah. To- have your work stolen and read elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things are evolving. I've seen a lot of mangaka sort of adapt with like, you know, if you insist on taking things from me, let me sanction it. Like people just sort of setting aside. I think it's pretty common now with all comics artists actually is to just like to actually create a platform of free content and then you know, with the books and things that actually have licenses, it's like, well, I gave you all that free stuff, so now you can actually go get the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a interesting way to go about it. But yeah, I feel like the piracy conversation, you know, especially interesting to me in the context of gay manga, just because so little of it is officially available mm-hmm. over here. Mm-hmm. And so... The piracy problem compounds the issue because of the piracy, I wonder, you know, publishers are already, you know, maybe skeptical about publishing it. But now that deters them even more. And that only also discourages the artist for even wanting to pursue official publication, too. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because publishers are on their own crisis, right? Like, so many of them are folding 
I wonder all the time about what money will look like in the future because a lot of this is sort of you want to honor people's work, but you also work around the we're so used to like making things based on how they'll sell. So I, I, I'm just now, I guess now that I work in a nonprofit arts context, I think about like, what are other motivators for art labor? <laughs> right. I mean, creating manga comics, actually is especially laborious. Oh You're putting God. so much blood, sweat and tears into it, working crazy hours. It blows to put out a my comic. mind. Like this, knowing the work that goes into a, go- a comic blows my mind like how is this not five hundred dollars every time (laughs) like the purchase Mm -hmm. price i mean just based on the level of work like if you buy a designer chair it's going to be five thousand dollars because of all of the thinking that went into the design even though the fabrication happens you know under totally different terms and the designer makes the most money in that scenario and then you look at like comics and it's like, huh, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, oh my God, I just read an issue of Optic Nerve that probably took Adrian like a couple months to finish, you know, and get it done correctly. And it was $12. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of an imbalance in terms of actual labor put in and then the cost to the reader. I mean, yeah. And then on the other hand, I totally get like publishing is mass merchandise. So there's probably a thousand copies out there and et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, I'm always like, wow, I think cartoonists just have the most amazing work ethic. Definitely. But speaking of the changing publishing landscape, I guess I do want to address something that I was curious about because a lot of the gay comics magazines that were out there have kind of closed down. We mentioned G-Men earlier, and G-Men, you know, was discontinued a few years ago. I think there is only one, like, gay manga-focused magazine, Samson, Mm -hmm. that is still left. Yeah. I remember Tagami uh, wrote on his blog last year that that was very discouraging. He's basically only making, you know, adult gay manga now in his spare time and maybe through crowdfunding campaigns, but he's going to focus on drawing all ages comics now Mm -hmm. because of this. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of really disheartening to hear from, like, one of the people who pioneered the genre. I was, like, wondering what your thoughts on kind of the state of gay comics Mm -hmm. and, like, you know, with magazines discontinuing, like, uh, the future of their publication. Yeah. I mean, the Japanese publishing industry is so interesting because – it was set up in this way where it was it was just like a really good set of circumstances to publish with a very healthy subscription economy, um, very healthy assumptions about like cultural silos. Like you could get all of your gig content out of a really rich magazine culture. Whereas I think in North America, that culture is sort of dispersed among a lot of other sorts of publishing modes. Like you don't have to get one magazine to get all of your, all of your kicks, right? Like you can, Mm. you can kind of get a little bit out of a heterogeneous source of publications. But I think the thing publishers of magazines, especially probably couldn't get around was the dojinshi market. I mean, self-published comics, printing comics in Japan is so efficient 
and such high quality self publishing in Japan is like it's like a really sophisticated industry now, and um, there's just so many ways to get your content without having to go through the middleman of a magazine now. I think that's mm. one big aspect of what's going on. And my personal thoughts on this are that it's kind of a shame, you know, the, what's so great about magazines anywhere is while you're reading one thing, you accidentally discover other things, right? That's like, for me, the best part is, you know, I might, <laughs> I just keep thinking of how <laughs> people talk about Playboy, like, I got it for the articles. <laughs> but like, <laughs> that might actually be true. Like, I might get it for the porn and then accidentally read an interview, right? <laughs> like, that's, mm-hmm. that's actually the best part. So I think that's a huge loss. And I and I wonder how will how that will be adapted or recovered. I know a lot of people marry their hopes to dating apps, but that's also mm. sort of, I mean, I find that problematic because then it ties it to sexual activity, which isn't the way we like to, you know, consume culture, a lot of us. So it's interesting that I want to keep an open mind about it. I don't want to get nostalgic, too nostalgic, but it is a shame, I think, overall. As for Tagame, I mean, I know he's still doing a ton of gay erotica. Just, again, it's for, like, dojinshi markets. And mm-hmm. I guess the one benefit to this is he gets to write more freely. Like, editors don't tell him. Don't, I. He's so legendary that no editor will tell him <laughs> <laughs> no. But even that last barrier is gone now, right? So... He re- mm. he really is free to write whatever he wants. Well, I'm glad that he has that freedom now. Mm. But it is really interesting to see how the landscape is, sh- is shaking up. But can you go more into that dating app thing? This is the first I've heard of that. Oh, sure. So I think like basically um, – so like I met some creators of an app in Japan called Nine Monsters. Have you heard of this? No. It's so cool. It makes me – really want it's the best it's so smart but uh interestingly it was started by editors of gay magazines and it's basically a dating app where you create a persona based on nine um monsters or actually animals but they call them monsters and i i don't know what relationship they have to anything they're not zodiac but it's like dog bear snake tiger cat and then i forget all nine of them but it's so cool and each animal represents sort of you you just get the general vibe of what the animal represents and then Mm. you describe yourself by like i love eating like a pig or i'm loyal like a dog or i'm very fuzzy you know it can be the physical traits or the sort of assumed emotional traits and then you also post your own information if you want to, like your picture and whatever. But with each interaction you have with people, they then calibrate your zoological profile. <laughs> so like John Doe can meet Jim Doe and be like, eh, he's actually more bear than pig. And then <laughs> – so it's like this really funny algorithm that gives you this like personality type – yeah, they've basically created a personality test. Anyway, 
This app is really popular, and I think because it was designed by magazine editors, you can tell you can tell from the way you interact with it. Like it's meant to cover all of your bases and touch on like all of your cultural touch touchstones. So not just what's your body like, what are you into, but like how do people interpret you, or like what do you like to do, or you know, like those kinds of questions that I think magazine editors are better at asking. Than just somebody who's horny. Mm, so wow, that's like a grinder. Also, is a thing, of course. But let those those growler grinder whatever apps, um, just location based anything, sort of supposedly get you to find each other in cultural spaces. Right? That's supposedly mm. the idea. Like, oh, we're in the same neighborhood. Let's go to this bar, and boom, you have culture. So I think that's how a lot of people also find each other. Not to mention, I think a large part of revenue for gay manga was the personal ads. So in the absence of personal ads, you go to the web, the dating apps and et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's an ecosystem. I know like Grindr tried to start a web magazine. Um, oh. I forgot what they called it. I think it was a thing for all of like, seven months or something like some i don't think it was actually i don't want to be quoted on that i have no idea how long <laughs> it was live but um i don't yeah anyway you know like i could picture a universe where the dating apps publish magazines um so far that hasn't been super successful but maybe i don't know maybe they need to be working more closely with magazine editors that's an interesting way to kind of reach out to people but also you know an interesting way to find readers like maybe just advertise directly on the app Mm -hmm. to them about different artists and their manga totally i mean that's how graham and i first promoted our first gay manga events was these like announcements on growler actually (laughs) (laughs) and that's really great i mean i guess let's talk a little bit maybe about Massive then? Because Massive, you guys are not only a publisher of, I mean, not just Gay Kongs, you also publish feminist comics like Goku Dinashiko mm-hmm, stuff, mm-hmm. but you're also kind of like a lifestyle brand with like a lot of great, you know, art and uh, apparel designed by artists like Jiraiya and mm-hmm. stuff. Think, yeah. Could you go into like, what was your thinking behind like making massive like that kind of multimedia uh, brand? Yeah. That it is? Uh, well, thanks first of all for saying those nice things about massive. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we tried, but um, we, we love, we just love the culture so much, and we already knew that it was a thing. Like, we weren't feeling like it was an invention; it was just an acknowledgement of what's already happening. The only thing is, Graham, being such a phenomenal design thinker, just always had ideas, and then some of them were just, like, impossible to ignore. So one of them, (laughs) you know, um, I I mean, I actually am more of, like, the marketing person, so I just try to understand opportunities and, you know, assess liabilities. I'm I'm very just, like, Ms. Business Admin, but... um, I was sort of like, well, the books are definitely not going to make enough money for us to set us up. Like, 
we had a two book deal with picture books, but we knew that didn't really mean anything if we wanted it to be sustainable. So it was actually when we were promoting Passion of Tagame with picture books, Graham and I were like, let's sell t-shirts. Like that's something everybody will buy. And um, that's literally just how it started was let's just make a t-shirt for it. It's like the most basic move. But the t-shirt did so well that we were like, <laughs> let's do sweatshirts and pants and other things. And then the clothing did so well, we just, you know, we really doubled down. And then we were like, I think it was funny. We we were like, fashion, yes, that's like so transgressive and like a real opportunity to talk about the plurality of body types and, you know, body positivity. But then we realized what a shit show the fashion industry is. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. And so, so horrible. There's, It's just impossible to do it correctly because at some point in the supply chain, you do have to resort to sweatshop unless you're making everything on your own. And we, we just couldn't reconcile with that. <laughs> so Yeah, probably no ethical way to really run a – Huge fashion brand well, that puts out tons of products. Exactly. I, I mean, and apropos of comics being too cheap, like not without it being six hundred dollars. You know what I mean? Like we could have mm-hmm. figured it out, but then the t-shirts would have been like sixty dollars. So right, and that'd be a price point just too high for the average yeah, consumer. And, right, just like pointless and unfair. I mean, you guys gained traction with the fashion brand. You partnered with Opening Ceremony for a bit. So that was pretty huge. Yeah, that was – it was huge to us too. That was exciting. I will say one thing about clothing is more and more people are doing ethical production. So that is one bright note. I think I I love seeing now all these, like, brands um, coming up and – you know, opening ceremony was a pretty serious one, and that was great to get their sort of collab. It's funny, like, not to be shady because I love them, but, you know, it's it's funny to see, like, even for them as a corporation, like, I don't know, maybe did they grow too fast, too, too, too big, too fast. It just kind of sends me into tailspin to think about what success means because, you know, you pass a threshold and then it becomes problematic all over again. Hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I still think it's cool that you guys were able to navigate in like different industries like that, and were able to gain a following. You yeah. know, with like gay manga culture, like the body types that Jiraiya draws, and that's part of what makes a gay manga special is like the body types of the mm-hmm. men in the stories. Mm-hmm. Like they're these big, beefy guys yeah. ripping muscles. Some are a little chubby. You know, yeah. a lot of diversity of body types that, you know, if you're reading Boys Love, you are you get like the slender, yeah. more thin, and thin kind of men. So, I mean, that's really awesome to like see like just a shirt of like two big beefy dudes right. like just looking at each other lovingly. Right, right, right. I can't agree more. I went through such a transformative education just working with these people. Oh my god, just everything from, I think if you ask the average non, I don't even know what to call them because there's so few of them, but anybody who hasn't had experience with the queer community, like all 10 of them, 
I think now if you ask them, if you know, describe a gay man, it would look like Ryan Murphy or like, you know, somebody from like a, it would just look like a very catalog sort of hairless, white-ish svelte person. And um, when I was meeting these Japanese artists for the first time, they were all genuinely, genuinely confused. They're like, we don't understand why this is the public image of a gay man. Like, if you meet us, every single one of us would prefer, you know, a soft sort of person, um, not hard-edged. Somebody doesn't shave five times a day. Somebody who, you know, <laughs> like, and, um, oh, my God, it was really eye-opening. Like, we totally have it wrong. and. I think there's more sort of accuracy and representation today, thank God. But um, that's been so interesting. Yeah, I mean, queer people are like all diverse. Yeah. They they aren't just a certain way, unlike like certain media stereotypes. But have you assumed like certain stereotypes about gay men being very effeminate? Mm, Exactly, In like Western pop culture in especially, mm-hmm. especially, but yeah, I mean, that's what's good about like having, you know, more diverse stories to show, hey, this is, there are a lot of different people mm-hmm. of different body types, of different backgrounds, you know, totally that who are all queer in their own unique way, which is really special. Yeah. 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 And I actually am interested to hear your thoughts on kind of the relationship between BL and gay comics. Mm-hmm. Because I know a lot of artists uh, have dabbled in one and the other, mm-hmm. and they go kind of back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, like, what your idea of, like, the distinction between them is. Like, in my mind, it is definitely the body types. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe for some people, it would be like, how explicit the sex is mm-hmm. but for i don't think necessarily that gay comics all necessarily even have to be sexual mm-hmm. uh, they can also just be love stories but i, I was wondering your thoughts mm-hmm. on it um yeah so i feel like i've been thinking more and more lately about taxonomies i guess mm. not just bl and gay manga but just generally and like I think about every time I go to the supermarket, a supermarket in a different town, and how they put things in different places. And then, like, so, for example, I was just in, like, rural New York visiting in-laws, and I went to a supermarket, and I was looking for tortillas. And I knew Mm. they'd have them, because I just knew. But long story short... I started in the bakery section, then I went to the, quote, ethnic aisle, woof, and then I eventually found <laughs> oh, it. No. Yeah. I When I found it, it was in the bread aisle, and I th- that was, like, really surprising. But then I also found, like, there was, like, the, I don't know what else to call it, but, like, the white people version of tortillas, which uh. which they kept, like, close to the bakery, and then the, the quote, authentic tortillas what looked like fresh tortillas manufactured by like not El Torito or whatever. <laughs> um, that that was on the, in the bakery section. Um, 
I guess my point is like you're going to find the tortillas anywhere in the supermarket that the supermarket decides is where the people go. So that's kind of how I start to think of the taxonomy of culture. So BLM, gay manga, sometimes the distinction is arbitrary. Like I do see BL sometimes. I'm like, wow, that looks a lot like like Takeshi Matsu or somebody who's Mm. like only done gay manga. And conversely, sometimes I'll look at gay manga and be like, okay, I see we're, you know, delving into like, especially kimono, like the furry stuff. I'm like, this feels sort of spiritually closer to BL in my mind. Hmm. So as far as the distinctions, I mean, if you asked me this question five years ago, I would have told you the difference is women writing it or men writing it. But now I have a much sort of different understanding of what even those words mean. Like, what are men and women? Like, and so many, right. you know, like, like one of the best, um, oh my gosh, her name is escaping me, but one of the best BL manga artists. Oh my God, it's going to kill me. I'll, I'll try to remember <laughs> it later, but, um, when I met her, she's like a butch lesbian. And I was like, oh, like I kind of wasn't expecting that. Like I, I had this idea of a BL writer, woman identified writer as being like straight. Well, a Fujoshi. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, I'll just take a real concrete example. Like, Ono Natsume to me is the, like, what, that's who I picture when you say BL. Mm. But, like, and she's just, like, a pretty, I don't know how else to describe her than just, like, she presents as femme, but is a little nerdy and loves BL. Like, it's just, like, really obvious. Um so, you know, and then when I meet gay mangaka, they usually look a little bit like Tagame or Jiraiya. So it's usually who the author is, how I distinguish. But now that the content looks so similar, I think some diehard fans will still have that same sort of tortilla aversion that I just described of like, <laughs> I'm not going to get flour tortillas hermetically sealed by El Torito. Like, I insist on getting the masa flour, you know, handmade tortillas. But at the end of the day, they're kind of, you know, some of them are similar enough that they can be in the same aisle, I think. Yeah. I mean, reading, you know, the introductions of Massive, you have a lot of artists talk about how they have actually done BL and they go back and forth between doing BL and gay comics. Yeah. And it seems to me that, you know, these stories, they're not written, like, from just one type of person and for one type of audience right. like there's a lot of diversity in the creators and in the audience that's right who enjoy it yeah absolutely so i think that we're getting a more of an understanding of that as more education is just being done exploring mm-hmm. queer manga mm-hmm. and so you have people kind of get away from like these binary distinctions these simplified boxes yeah. that you categorize works in yeah. And I I'm just hoping that there are more, you know, gay comics that get licensed and published. I mean, we talked before that most of the work is being done in Doji now. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing more publishers come up that are explicitly licensing and translating Doji, like Iridori Comics. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping they will find, you know, a new avenue to get works officially translated and released over here mm-hmm. on sites like Faku or, you know, even 
some other sites maybe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that are dedicated to gay comics, like Fudakia has set, been set up for BL yeah. manga. Yeah, totally. I exactly I echo that desire. <laughs> I think <laughs> I and I I feel good about it. I think it'll happen. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm wondering, like, what you see the future of Massive is. I know you guys have been kind of on a hiatus for the past year, mm-hmm. but, like, what are some plans you hope to do in the future that you'd be yeah. interested in? I think, so I'll share, just, I'll tell you some ideas that have come up that we keep thinking about. And we in this is uh, me and Graham for sure, but also collaborative sort of friends, like, our fashion designer friend Henry or Jackie, who was our project manager at opening ceremony. And then all the artists and, you know, the models we've worked with. And this, I love getting feedback, but, um, you know, like I'd love for massive to continue to be about creating space for the fans. Mm-hmm. Nothing brought me more joy than the events. I think just like the cons and the mixers and the, even the drink and draws, I, you know, just, I, I wish we could keep doing those kinds of things where we just like encourage people to meet. But I think in the last several years, a lot of nightlife movements have started like bubble tea and new, new, uh, oh my God, why can't I remember the name? Oh my God. The Toronto new ho queen, new ho queen. That's a it. So that's one thing is just like, what if we became an environment for events? And then the other thing is books, of course, are always the thing that we want to come back to. That one's tricky because so many publishers are folding. Like, I hope this isn't a cautionary tale, but literally everybody who's published our books has folded with exception of fanographics. Mm. Picture Box, Gamunder, and now Koyama Press is closing shop. And like that, that can't be good, right? Like, so, um, I wonder about the sustainability of independent publishing. Um, and then when we talk about the fashion stuff and clothing, now we're like, what if we do rentals? Like, we just do these beautiful bespoke, like handmade things and then rent, like, kind of like the rent the runway model. And then lastly, uh, my favorite idea, and I just don't think it's feasible, but my favorite nonetheless is um, kind of taking over what Rampoy was doing, but for like specifically Asian bodies or like other mm. bodies. So like a portal to help people meet, you know, big bodies, non-binary bodies, um, bodies of color. But um, that that was like a really highfalutin idea I would still love to develop just it would require so much more time and money. <laughs> so that'd be a wonderful idea, though, especially since I mean, one of the really great aspects of gay conks is that, you know, it shows Asian body types that, you know, is against like kind of at least this Western perception of what Asian male sexuality is. Right, right, exactly. And that's what I think that was the most important feedback we got was just how, how important it was for a lot of folks to be able to not come out sexually, but come out just like visibly, right? Like for visibility. Mm. So that was, that was really exciting. As for like the immediate future, I think Graham and I have committed not to shut it down for now. We're just keeping it on standby, but um, we're both so involved in our community activism that like, 
that sounded really braggy. I didn't mean it to sound like that, but <laughs> we're just like, <laughs> we're very, we're so busy. Like, it's just like the hours of the day get really all consuming with work. So we're in complete agreement that that's much more important right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm trying to figure out how to make time for this. I'm also open to suggestions, to be honest, if your listeners have ideas or want to collaborate with us, I'm all ears. So there's that. I mean, I, I'm i not taking any credit for this, but I have seen since the beginning of Massive just so many more queer Asians in the public eye. So exciting. That's so exciting. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, in an ideal world, the future of Massive is that one of them takes over. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, so yeah. Yeah, that you've brought up a community that will keep the spirit alive, like, after you leave. Like, that is, like, something to strive for, definitely. Yeah, yeah, totally. To keep the fire burning. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you've got a lot of great projects and ideas in mind, so I'm excited to see them, you know, develop in the future. And I know you guys are, you know, still been doing some really good work. Like, I know that Graham was working on Queer Japan, yes, the documentary. Yeah. I'm really excited to see it whenever I can get the chance to. Like, I know that features, like, a huge swat of people in the queer community in Japan, including Tagane. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited to watch that. Oh, my God. It's so good. I'm so proud of that work. Um, he did such an amazing job. It does have a distributor now, so I think it's just a matter of time when it becomes streamable. Yeah. Um. I mean, I... Unfortunately, I'm giving up hope about the theaters reopening in the theater. (sighs) I know, I know. (laughs) I I mean, at this point, I think we're just counting on it being at least on, like, definitely digital for sure, but um, that it's also hopefully, you know, somewhere with subscription basis instead of a fee so Mm. more people can see it. But yeah. Netflix would be a great avenue. I know. I'm like, (laughs) I always say that in my head, and then I'm like, don't say it out loud, don't say it out loud. But it's like, (laughs) Netflix, if you're listening, you should talk to uh, Altered Innocence, our distributor. (laughs) (laughs) I hope they do. Oh, I can't wait to watch that. We did a really good overview on the gay manga scene and kind of the state of it, but mm-hmm. I do want to talk a little bit about Tagami and your work on My Brother's Husband in particular, mm-hmm. if you've yeah. got the time. Uh, I guess just to start from the beginning, like, what was the genesis of My Brother's Husband for Tagami? Like, why did he start drawing it? And, like, yeah. what was his interest in doing it? There are a couple of things about this I know. One is an editor, a highly placed general market editor. Uh, not, I don't think the one he ended up working with, but just somebody kind of important. Just kind of asked this hypothetical question of like, if you did a general audience manga, what would it look like? Like, do you think you could break out of erotica? And Tagami without missing a beat was like, oh, easy. I would absolutely be able to do that. I can do that. I know that that was sort of a hypothetical question asked a couple different ways. And then finally, somebody at Futabasha, his ultimate publisher, was like, would you do it? Like, we're asking if you if you did what it would look like, but would you do it? And he's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I think people just kind of thought like, well, maybe he wouldn't. But he's like, no, I would completely. 
He also has always said like that the two modes of writing are not they don't cancel each other out. Like he doesn't think he can only do for for young adults and or for hardcore BDSM people. Like he does think they can sort of coexist in his brain. He has this really funny anecdote. His husband erases his pencils when he inks and he's like his husband I guess has said like this eraser has erased cocks and little girls. Like <laughs> that's <laughs> <laughs> So he the other thing that happened is I think I'm going to own this if it, I'm remembering it incorrectly and it wasn't you know like it, it was just sort of implied in a conversation somewhere but um what did you eat yesterday had come out? Ah, yeah, yeah. from Yusinaga. Yeah, and um, I guess some there were some questions in the gay community of like, why is this the work that's getting mainstream attention? Like, why is you know like, hmm. so that that was just like a, another impetus, I guess you could say. Like, shouldn't this be something written by one of our heroes? And then. It was a combination of gay writers being like, who's our, who's the guy who's going to do this for us? And then publishers asking Tagame, like, would you do it? And then finally it happened. But it was like several years of this kind of, what would it look like for you to be in the mainstream questioning? Wow. And probably thinking about the story that he wanted to tell for like a mainstream, mostly straight audience, I suppose. Right. And then the big kicker here was, is it possible to write gay stories for straight readers? And I think he successfully answered that, so. Mm-hmm. I mean, that definitely comes through in My Brother's Husband, I think, making Yaichi kind of the perspective character, and mm-hmm. he's being introduced into the world of gay culture, or at least he is being introduced to a gay person for the first time and then understanding more about what it means to be gay uh-huh, mm-hmm. and kind of understanding that a lot better than what he had preconceived. Yeah. I think that's part of the broad appeal of it is that it is very, I guess, inviting if you are not very familiar right. with gay people in your life, I guess. Well, the irony, or the this is so deliberate, my and my favorite thing about that story is Yaichi is way more non-traditional than Mike. Like, mm. he's a divorcee, single father without a job, really. Right. right? Like, and that's, yeah, and that's part of his fear is that he will be judged for being a single dad. Yeah. He's worried about people looking at his family and saying, oh, you can't raise your daughter by yourself right. as a single dad. Like, he has, like, that kind of moment of fear mm-hmm. that kind of comes to a head when he has the conversation with a teacher mm-hmm. uh, later on in the story. But also, it is something that makes him start to understand, oh, like, this isn't that unusual to be in living like the way we do as like separated parents raising a daughter and mike is also not unusual like this is all normal right we're all normal people right yeah exactly and i love that juxtaposition like mike's the more norm corey person and you know but the to their blended family just kind of shows yeah like all of us can be normal normal as normal does so Mm mm-hmm 
it's a great celebration of a non-traditional family, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, definitely relates is relatable for a lot of people who, you know, might come from separated homes mm-hmm. and you know, have all sorts of different living situations that are different from the traditional idea of two parent households. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And from there, you know, my brother's husband did really well in Japan. And I was wondering, like, the road to get it licensed and published overseas. And it's interesting Pantheon picked the book up because, I mean, that was basically their first manga they published, That's right? right, yeah. Yeah. That's all Chip. I think Chip had wanted mm. Pantheon to do something with Tagame since day one. And it was always too erotic or too dark. And then this happened and he's like, we have no excuse now. We have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess he was able to just have it in at Pantheon and convince someone there to publish the book. Yeah, because he'd been beating that drum for so long, honestly. I think his the editors were always like, yeah, we agree. It's just, you know, it's too... It's hardcore. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. the stuff that Tagami explores <laughs> yeah. in his books. Uh, I'm like just laughing A lot of BDSM, yeah. a lot of really harsh stuff i mean yeah there the one story where a guy is raped by like this goat god thing <laughs> uh, the grease one yeah the christian right? cow yeah 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 by the minotaur <laughs> oh my god minotaur, right right yeah. no i know can you imagine if that was a pantheon title <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's another interesting thing about tagami's work though is that even though he draws some really extreme stuff Mm -hmm. like he has a pretty broad following i mean not just among gay people but among readers of uh all sorts and i guess i was wondering like your uh perception of why that appeal lies um a lot of people have theories on this uh, or not theories but sort of approaches actually gay men will say what's so interesting about Tagami's work isn't how gay it is it's how dark it is so I think Mm. a lot of people attracted to the bondage scenarios and that's also like an underrepresented community right or sort of um just like slightly different sexual orientations um I think Tagami gets asked this a lot of if he's an S or an M and he's like, I'm both <laughs> like I can do it all. <laughs> um, I, our understanding of sexuality is so binary. So he's, he's only so happy to be like, Hey, I can take it and give it, you know? And um, yeah. <laughs> so that's one thing about his writing that appeals to people who all feel that way, right? Like, Hey, I can take it and give it. So that's not just men. Whereas, like a Jiraiya, um, you know, he's popular, of course, with all kinds of people, but in Japan, he's definitely like a man's mangaka. Like, mm. it, he doesn't quite have like the non man following that he does in the US. Um, and if you read his longer form comics, it's like, very much about masculine culture it's you know it celebrates fraternity i don't think i've Mm. ever read a book by him that doesn't feature at least five like a core group of like five 
guys who just like hang out. You know, like it's a very different mm. culture he describes. With Tagame, it's always like, you know, like a BDSM relationship, very, you know, sort of. I, I mean, he's done orgies and, you know, whatever, but like it's it usually comes down to like one person who's really haunted. Right. Tagami's work kind of explores desire yeah. in a carnal way. Yeah. And I think that's really appealing to people. And Jiraiya's work is kind of about like really intimate, romantic uh, mm-hmm. relationships between men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like really masculine romantic relationships. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, definitely exploring desire is something that i think a lot of people can resonate with because a lot of people you know do suppress i guess their sexuality Mm -hmm. so i think that is a good outlet for people is to read fiction to can go to extremes that they can't do in real life right to kind of live out these fantasies right 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 so I think Tagami taps into something interesting there, but it also makes it really interesting 180 for him to write such a sweet story in My Brother's oh, Husband. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that work, too, is a testament to a person who's very well-traveled and well-versed and, like, curious about all everything, you know, because... I think there's a virtue to working in sort of a chamber environment, but there's also a very different virtue to working in a universal environment. So mm-hmm. I think that's why My Brother's Husband succeeds is because he he just, as a writer, contains so much knowledge because he has asked so many questions. Like, one thing is also the enormous amount of research that went into this for him. Like, I think in slightly less responsible hands, the same story would be told with some, like, not inaccuracy, but sort of an inauthenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I think, that's the work he puts into all of his work, whether it's hardcore gay erotic porn or like an all ages family story. Yeah, My Brother's Husband definitely reads like it is based on some really real emotions and experiences. Mm-hmm. I think that adds to the authentic flavor of it. Mm-hmm. Actually, speaking of inspirations, I have to ask, you know, Mike is Canadian. I have been wondering, like, how much of Mike is based off of Christopher Butcher, founder of Decaf? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Tagame gets this question and he always is like, Oh my god, they look nothing alike. He's like, I. He's like, he has nothing to do with butcher. Mm-hmm. He all. He's like, <laughs> he he says this all the time. Like they're not. Mike is not Chris at all. Like he's he's insistent on it, but but he will admit a few things. One, he did talk to Chris quite a bit about Canadian culture. So and mm-hmm. and they are personal friends. So you know it would be hard to escape that connection. Um. <laughs> I'm just gonna say what he said. He's like, maybe the problem is too many men in Canada look like this. <laughs> He's like, don't you think? Don't you think a lot of Canadian men are thinking right now, like, oh, is that me? Like, he's like, I think that a lot of people look like this. He's like, I drew somebody who I think. He's like, this also, and you know, he named people. He's like, this also looks like this guy, and it also looks like that guy. So. <laughs> With all due respect to Chris, who's completely just like a one of a kind human being, um, 
Tagami is always like, oh, I'm kind of sad that people think, like, I can, you know, I wouldn't have at least just said, like, this is based on Chris if that were actually the case. Um, But yeah. Mm -hmm. So I know. (laughs) It's it's sort of hard. I mean, for that matter, I'm like, there's a little girl that kind of bullies Kana at one point a little bit. Not bully, but just sort of says something stupid. And uh, I'm like, I feel like I might be the basis of that character. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. There we go. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure all these characters draw a little bit of inspiration from, you know, people to come and spend in real life, but not explicitly one-to-one are those. No, right. But isn't it true that the idea of Mike making mac and cheese oh, that's is based all Chris. on something Chris That's said. all Chris. Yeah. That's, com- that's 100% Chris, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I think we may as well perpetuate this idea that it was Chris. It may as well be Chris. <laughs> but yeah, it's certainly fun to think that way. I love just talking about his response to this question each time. He's always so funny. He's like, mm. <laughs> I guess to speak about your work translating the series in particular and addressing, I guess, culture gap things. You know, there's uh, moments in My Brother's Husband where Mike misunderstands a Japanese word or speaks in anglicized mm-hmm. Japanese, like saying hasban or something like that. Right. I was wondering, like, what was your approach to moments like that? And what were some of the more difficult moments to translate? Oh, God, I know. I feel like, oh, the romanization of Japanese is really hard. To, that's one of the hardest things to translate. That's right up there with sound effects. I think those are the two mm. things where I spend the most time. My approach to it is actually just talking to Tagame. Like, what do you think makes the most sense? And then we come up with something. I usually default to like, I think this is not going to be, you probably see it too, just like between manga fans, like when to transliterate and keep as much of the original intent in there so that readers get a real sense of it being a Japanese book versus like localizing it right Mm -hmm. i think i usually tend toward localization but i know with this one it was really i just let tagame kind of take the wheel and like came up with some alternatives i can't think of anything off the top of my head of like a specific conversation but that's usually what happened Interesting. It's pretty rare for like a direct conversation with the original artist in terms of input on like how the translation should be mm-hmm, handled. Mm-hmm. That's really cool to hear. I think there was one scene that I was interested in uh, in terms of when a Japanese word was kept, and that's when Mike and Yaichi are talking about uh, Kana's friend mm. Yuki, who was, you know said like when people love each other it's a beautiful thing and had like a very you know mature mm-hmm. sweet sentiment and uh, Yaichi calls her an omai-san I was wondering like why that phrase uh, that word was kept in the translation because hmm. that stood out to me because when I was thinking about it I was like oh maybe that could mean precocious I don't really know what the word means mm-hmm. I think yeah it's funny I guess I don't completely remember exactly how I ended up keeping that word but um I think it's like when there's a way of titling or there's a way of describing 
Um, I'm just trying to think of like another corollary, but if it's especially a sort of idiomatic way of titling somebody, like when we say things like, okay, your highness, like Mm. that doesn't really translate if there's an existing monarchy, right? Like Mm. then it just sounds inappropriate. Whereas like just giving somebody like a really arcane title of like precocity, I just, there are certain situations where it just makes more sense, I think, to do that. Okay, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Like, some, I guess, titles or nicknames just don't, like, translate very well in the same context in another language. Well, it's sort of like, this is very different, but it's kind of like when we say sensei, like, it means mm. something different than teacher, right? Like Right, and sensei is kept in the translation, too. Right, right, right. Because I think that's, like... In Japan, you don't, you can call anybody sensei who you have this deferential relationship with. So, right. Sensei can not just be teachers, but also doctors. Right. Like anyone in a position where you respect them. Right. Right. Exactly. I think it's interesting that words like sensei and senpai, I feel, have just mm. become a part of the English lexicon now just because of. Japanese pop culture. Yeah. Well, I'll say too, now that like it, this harkens to the latest kind of scrambling a lot of pop culture around English use of the word master, but it's mm. like um, that power dynamic. I think it feels safer to use the Japanese language because it's not based on the same oppressive systems. Like they're different oh, oppressive yeah. systems, but um, maybe not. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it's just different. So when we can, if we, in the absence of being able to say master, like, oh my God, like if, (laughs) (laughs) woof, like if we started translating it as master, it would be. Yeah, there are like implications there that are kind of uncomfortable and also not really reflective of like what we are trying to establish the relationship to be. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even seniority doesn't sit well with Americans, right? Like, Mm. just because you're older, you know. But uh, senpai, that's kind of all it means. Is like, or that's sometimes all it means. Yeah, it means senior. And like, you just, for like, I think English readers and audiences who just grow up in Japanese culture, it's just a cute way of addressing someone as like being older than them and upper classmen. And that's like the only context. It's not necessarily respect there. It's just almost joking. (laughs) You see see the word being used in the American kids TV shows now because those creators have grown up loving That's so funny. Oh my god, I have to see this. Like, do you have an example? I Oh, like in Craig of the Creek, oh uh, definitely god. so much okay. Japanese uh, pop culture references. Definitely. they There are definitely uh, weebs in there who make use of Japanese <laughs> words like senpai. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Oh yeah, it's a great, great show. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just in general about translating Tagami, though, does Tagami write a particular style that you find really interesting or challenging? Um, he really does take the tone of, like, it's there's a familiarity to how he writes. I guess the reason that's, you know, like, there's very familial tone, it's very, like, you're really in there. He's a staunch disciple of storytelling, 
like mm. universe building and storytelling are, are so important to him. So it's less about like, I mean, character development, sure, but like not character development, like you're going to get a bunch of hero shots. Like it's more sort of in the whole ecosystem. He loves building ecosystems. So I'm always surprised that at what is dialogue and what is visualized because he's so smart and does have so much information in each of his universes. His writing, his dialogues are so familiar. And I think a pedantic person who had as much information as him <laughs> would resort to things like narration or like really long exposition, but um, but not him, right? Like that's that's really no. pretty good, I think. Show not tell, right? Like he's really, I think, yeah. pretty good at that. Though he and I talk about this a lot, like how language changes. I think I don't know if it's a difficulty, but just something that takes a little longer is when he is using like English or kind of speaking in the English or American context. Because he does that once in a while where a character just like says something in English that he wrote in himself. That That's always a little awkward because I usually find myself like suggesting changes. But, you know, it's like he did write it, but I'm basically being like, mm, I think you meant this. Mm, that's really cool. And again, I mean, it is great that you're able to like kind of talk one on one with Tagami about like how to approach translation. Yeah, I mean... I'm really lucky we have a relationship. I know, yeah, it's not always that way, but I feel very lucky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he really is a fantastic artist and writer. And my brother's husband, it does never, it never like feels uh, overbearing with any of the dialogue. All the dialogue feels really naturalistic, and so much information is communicated just through great visual information. We talked a lot about how great Tagami's visual mm -hmm. metaphors were in the series, like Yaichi talking to his own reflection in the mirror, mm -hmm. and then like the shadow of his brother always haunting him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, there's some really great, mm -hmm. uh, evocative imagery to the work. Definitely, yeah. And I guess I want to round off our conversation by talking about what the future of Tagami's work might be, and especially in the West, uh, brought over in English. Because yeah. he's currently been doing, you know, an all-ages one called All Colors. Mm -hmm. I mean, it recently ended. I really hope to read that uh, one day. But, you know, he said that he's focusing on a lot of old ages stuff. Uh, and I was wondering, like, what your thoughts are on, you know, his direction of his career in the future and yeah. receiving more of it overseas. Um, so, A, our colors is signed with Pantheon. I'm translating it now. Wow. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they've announced it. I mean, the the contract. I have not heard an announcement. Okay. So this is my first time hearing <laughs> well, about it. I'll, I'll have to talk to Pantheon. Um, that probably was my job, um, but we did <laughs> sign a contract, so it's like happening. I'm translating it. Um, we're working on it for next year. You know, come out next year. I'm super stoked on this one. It's so so good. It really sings to me, actually, a little bit more maybe even than my brother's husband because it's set in a high school and that feels a little closer. So excited about that. Um, he's also still doing like. His, you know, self-published stuff and finding people. He's now crowdsourcing English translations. 
I am talking to people about a second set of gay erotica from him, like maybe yeah. even a passion too. So that's probably going to happen, but not like immediately, immediately. So those are some things in the immediate future that are being planned. And then I think he's also, I don't know what other works he's doing for, you know, general audience, but he's about to get really busy again with my brother's husband because um, I know there's talk of like a film deal. So like, that's something he's working on, we're working on. And then, yeah, I think that's it. So he's still doing his self-published gay erotica, crowdsourcing English translations. We're working on a translation of our colors. He's got a lot of stuff going on. Actually, now that I've said all of that out loud, it's like he's pretty busy. Um, Yeah. That's awesome. I am so excited to read our colors and for the prospect of a passion too. Yes, please. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. More Tagame, I can't get enough of. I know. It's it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that Tagame is like really doing some great work now and it's getting more attention than it ever has been. Yeah. And yeah, I just continue to look forward to more of his stuff and uh, hopefully to see even more stuff from creators in the gay comic scene in the future too. Like Marista from Jiraiya and Takashi Matsu, everyone. Like, I, I really, really want to see more. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a lot to be excited about uh, with Tagami and gay comic scene right now. And I want to thank you, Anne, for coming on and talking about it with us. Thank you so much. This was so awesome. What a great conversation, Siddharth. Thank you. And do you want to let people know, like, where they can find you? Or maybe talk about your work with the Asian Arts Initiative, like, what you do there, some of the stuff you have planned. Yeah. Uh, how people can get involved. Um, I'm at ill underscore iterate on Twitter if people want to find me. Otherwise, Asian Arts Philly on Twitter. We're a Philadelphia-based community arts organization, and our motto is to build community through the power of art. So... Asian Arts Initiative was founded as a Black and Asian poetry collection, collective, sorry. Basically, we've been working, you know, Philadelphia is a majority Black city and has one of the oldest Chinatowns. So there's a lot of interesting sort of legacies we're working with and around in terms of communities of color. But we principally believe and operate under the sort of truth of art as being the a really strong response to the needs of community. So currently we have an exhibition to mark the 45th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War featuring mostly Lao American artists called mm. Thank You No Thank You. That's up on our website, AsianArtsInitiative.org. Um I think the way to support us is just to like check us out. <laughs> yeah. So it, and yeah. definitely go do that. Like head to the website and then check out like upcoming events yes yeah and there'll be more of those oh the other thing i do want to shout out real quickly an initiative i started with a couple other local organizations is philly arts for black lives and Mm. that's really specifically to speak to this moment and making sure when arts leaders and arts organizations say that they support movements for black lives that they mean it so Mm -hmm. we're working on sort of resources and um, how to have conversations with your leaders and board members uh, when they talk out of both sides of their mouth, which sometimes happens, unfortunately. 
and answering the question, like, what exactly does defund the police mean? Like, we firmly believe in that, but, uh, you know, not to get all political, but I know it does, <laughs> it is a conversation. So that's an initiative I'm really proud of, and it'll become part of the Asian Arts Project Purview. Excellent. I'm seeing a lot of really great initiatives from the art world to promote the Black Lives Matter movement and prop up uh, Black artists. And it's really been heartening to see in the community recently. Yeah, totally. I'm so grateful for just like the openness of the arts community. It's been really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And definitely more efforts out there to, you know, educate people about what's been going on and what the defund the police movement, you know, what we mean by that, that is also like a really helpful resource too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, phillyartsforblacklives.com. If you live in the Philly area, check it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. This was so great. I'm um really excited to dig into your archives now too. This is like so great. Oh, thank you so much. And I think we can stop recording okay. because normally we just record the outro on our own. Okay, cool. But thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, Sajat. Thanks again to Anne for coming on the show to discuss her approaching background and thoughts on the game on Gatsina and Gortagame. It was a pleasure to talk to her and awesome to hear insights on the current state and future of game manga as well as specific translation insights on My Brother's Husband. It was also exciting and an honor to, I guess, basically break the news that Our Colors is indeed being published by Pantheon in 2021, though they still haven't announced it with a press release yet, which is strange to me considering that we recorded this interview with on a couple months ago, back in June. So, either way, I am still really excited to read Our Colors when it comes out and know that it's in great hands with on. And I'm really looking forward to Passion of Gengor Takami 2 and all the other projects she and Takami will be collaborating on in the future. And definitely check out Anne's work with the Asians Arts Initiative and participate in their upcoming events and see how you can get involved. I wish I had more gay manga specific or Takami related community shoutouts for this episode, but alas, I haven't really come across anything recently. But I still have some great stuff that's come out about LGBTQ manga and by LGBTQ creators for this time. First, I want to spotlight Matt Witz's new Bloomment of You video, where she highlights how the series explores different ways people approach and express loves through the relationships and personal perspectives of the characters in the show, addressing the distinction between romantic love and other forms of love, how the series draws distinctions between you and Nanami in terms of how worthy they see themselves of love and how that's challenged, and you and Maki in terms of what it means to actually be aromantic and how you simply can't choose how you feel. Madwiz approached this video from a very personal lens, describing how the lessons she took from it have shaped her own understanding of herself, her gender identity and sexuality, and what she wants out of relationships with others and how it's encouraged her to take a step towards major changes in her life. It's a really awesome, affecting video essay and analysis of the series' themes and how impactful it was on Matt Wiz in particular, and I really recommend it if you're a fan of the series. Matt Wiz's video also made me want to rewatch another great video on the series, which brings me to my second shout-out, Zaria's analysis of the Bloom and anime from a few years ago, where she described Bloom as a watershed production for your anime in terms of being the kind of beautifully made cross-demographic production that your anime so rarely receive, with Bloom really being the flagbury of a new exciting trend of more widely popular and transgressive Yuri stories. 
Zaria puts Bloom into the context of Yuri's development as a genre to highlight what makes the story stand out and reflect emerging trends that buck the fatalist heteronotivity of early Yuri works to embrace a more modern understanding of queer sexuality and that queer couples can live happy lives together, a more hopeful encouraging message underlying modern Yuri stories. Serious comparisons of the Bloom anime and manga and how the adaptation excels is also extremely excellent and really shines a light on how thoughtfully and reverently made the Bloom anime really is. And speaking of thoughtfully and reverently made anime and videos, I also adored Kiku Kat's analysis of the Pokemon Gacha music video. She examines how the music video manages to both tell a story about change and growing up while simultaneously evoking a nostalgic reference for the past with meaningful references and symbolism and how the video is constructed, and particularly through its three-layer narrative threads of the standby me homage, the new protagonist with the Pikachu and Eevee, and the flashes of iconic characters and moments from the games. Much like how the video is packed with detail, Keiko Katz analysis has then spent insights and observations that coalescing into a really beautiful and moving piece on the impact media and the Pokemon franchise in particular can make on you, and that it's okay to hold on to those memories and the nostalgia as things change and you move forward in your life and you grow up. And I really love that video and Keiko Katz's personal and emotionally charged video essay tribute to it has really made me appreciate it all the more. Another great pace on the Pokemon Gacha music video was written a little while ago by Nick Cranver for Crunchyroll, though he focuses less on the specific themes of the music video itself so much as the broader talents of director Rie Matsumoto and animation director Yuki Hisashi, basically doing career retrospective on their work and what makes their production stand out visually, thematically, and expressively. Rie Matsumoto is one of my favorite directors, and I think Nick did a really great job analyzing and describing the idiosyncrasies that make her poetry so mesmerizingly beautiful and beautifully creative. And now that we're in article territory, my next couple shoutouts will come from Anime Feminist. And I have two pieces I want to start out with about my life as a villainist. And the first of these is by Alex Henderson, and they explore the series as a bisexual power fantasy in terms of relationships explored in the series, but also examine whether the society and culture presented in the series is really free of heteronormative assumptions, and they ultimately find that it's kind of ambiguous. It's kind of like in a limbo where there are things in the world that are really progressive, some things that seem a little built on some heteronormativity, but ultimately, while it might not be a perfect queer world, this series still has characters be very openly queer and outcomment, and that makes it satisfying escapism nonetheless. The next piece comes from Kauti about how villainous is a trailblazer in a renaissance and trend of reward as villainous stories in light novels and manga, exploring the roots of these characters from Otomi games and how the reward is villainous genre. It's about reclaiming these characters to write stories about women breaking through the confines of patriarchal restrictions of the world's women are limited to in fantasy stories, taking traits normally prescribed to villainesses and presenting them as heroines, allowing them to be people, allowed to grow in the multidimensional nuance of human beings able to achieve their own happiness and their own happy endings and through their own effort. So both pieces on villainess are really great and demonstrate what makes this the perfect piece of progressive escapist entertainment. But to look back to the past, Vi Kaiser wrote a great piece about Paradise Kiss and what makes the manga hold up as a great examination of gender issues and sexist biases, particularly how beautifully bittersweet the central relationship was as a stepping point for the central characters to grow as people during and after the relationship, and Rai examines how the anime fucks it all up. 
by trying to condense that last volume into one episode, reshifting the focus from Yukari to Dora, dropping Yukari's arc of her personal growth and reducing it to being one of a tragic story of a woman who never got over her first boyfriend. And Ryan basically describes this as more of kind of a sexist consumerist reframing of the material to simply simplify a more complex story about romance relationships. But ultimately, the manga's the last laugh because it's the one still in print, and that's pretty cool. But speaking of series that were doing great with interesting themes only to mess it up, on the end, through trickling away all the heroine's personal growth by reducing her entire arc to roll around her relationship with a man, Dee wrote a great article about how Prince Design did exactly that and ultimately reinforced gender essentialist ideas and sexist adjunctions about women, including their physical ability compared to boys, taking them being objectified sexually as a matter of fact, and that romantic feelings make women's emotions stable, which is what especially derails the show in its last third. So, what could have been a cool, empowering women's baseball anime just becomes a frustratingly middle-of-the-road one that's mired about in regressive understandings about women's emotions, capability, and their role in society. And my last piece from Anifem is one on Love Me For Who I Am by Yevital that examines the ways it is both inclusive of LGBTQ characters, but also falls short in understanding that binary people, at least from the author's personal perspective, describing both things they admired about Bogabu, but were frustrated or triggered by in their treatment in the manga. And I think this was a very fair piece that gets at heart of some problems or aspects of Love Me For Who I Am that some queer and non-binary readers may not gel with, as it does at times read like kind of a hand-holding manga when it comes to understanding queerness and non-binary identities, and that can be uttering and place a burden in the series on the uttered character to make other people feel more comfortable with them because of that. So, you know, from what I understand and from our conversation with Ashley in our podcast on the series earlier this year, a lot of the criticisms that people bring up about the series just based on the first volume are addressed in the series and explored more deeply and satisfying as it progresses in future volumes. But I think this is perhaps the best written piece on the strengths and weaknesses of the series from the first volume in its expression of queerness and non-variant identity, you know, the where it succeeds, where it fails. And I think it's a very fair piece and a very great perspective to have on it. But on the subject of gender presentation and identity, my last shout-out for this episode is a personal comment by Noelle Stevenson exploring their gender dysmorphia, particularly in relationship to their breasts and getting breast reduction surgery, ultimately realizing their gender fluid and becoming more comfortable with that realization that, you know, how they feel about their gender presentation can change depending on the circumstances, how they feel in the moment, but ultimately... They feel more comfortable being themselves now after going through with the breast reduction surgery and just that realization of just letting themselves be themselves. And it was a really moving story that explored gender and body dysmorphia and trying to present in a certain way just kind of the societal baggage of needing or wanting to or being forced to present in particular gendered ways. and. I really resonated with it. I thought it was a really moving story about gender and body And it's definitely worth a read if you've ever felt similar frustrations or inserted needs, or if you just want to read a very powerful and moving comic about those feelings. 
But that wraps it up for the shoutouts and this episode. And thanks again for listening. Look forward to the remaining installments of LGBT Thanksgiving with our interview with Jack Cottrell of Mars Easter Entertainment coming out next week. In the meantime, if you want to check out more of my work, you can find me on Twitter as at Lumramyasha. And pretty much everywhere I'm at by that name, wherever there's a Lumramyasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my monk reviews on allnatchcomma.com. We've got a lot of books coming in and a lot of reviews going out, so look forward to more. As for the show, you can find Manga Mavericks on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks or Manga Mavericks on Tumblr, on Tumblr at Manga Mavericks on Tumblr.com, on YouTube at YouTube slash Manga Mavericks, or just search for the channel in the search bar and you'll find it. We're also on every podcasting platform you can think of, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, so if you'd be so inclined, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating review to help us grow and reach more of our hearts and ears, and you can also send us feedback to our email at mangamavericks at gmail.com. We really appreciate feedback, and it helps us improve the show, make things even better, and you can also help us make the show better by supporting us on Patreon, where we offer a variety of tier options you can subscribe to for a slew of perks and privileges, including early access to select podcasts at our $2 tier and monthly bonus podcasts at our $5 tier. In fact, $2 subscribers were able to listen to our interview with on over three months before we released it on our public feed, so... If you want a lot of early stuff, like we've got tons of podcasts up on our Patreon weeks to months in advance of the public release, including our recent podcast on Tycoon's Burn the Witch, where we interview the series' official localization team from this media about their experiences working in the manga industry and on the series. So there's a lot to look forward to the Manga Mavericks podcast in the coming weeks and months, but until next time, this has been the 140th episode of the Among Us podcast, and we will see you all in the next one. Sayonara!